So listen to this passage out of Deuteronomy chapter 30. In verse 15 it says this. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to pay, take possession of. But if your hearts turn away and you will not obey, but are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You will not prolong your days in the land where you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess it. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants, by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him, for this is your life and the length of your days that you may live in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. See, the big picture to the book of Nehemiah is that we have a God who is a promise giver. He is a promise maker, but he is also a promise keeper. And because he is a promise keeper, he had given many promises to the people of Israel. And he made this promise through the pen of Moses to the people of Israel long before the day of Nehemiah. It was actually when they were about to enter into their promised land, God says, this is what I want you to keep in mind. I want you to keep this in your heads. I want you to keep it within your hearts. Know this. That if you guys yield to me, if you worship me and you submit yourself completely to me, if you read the entire context of that passage, he says, I am going to bless you like crazy. I will make sure that you will have no miscarriages. I am going to make sure that you are, all your crops are in abundance. I am going to make sure that all your flocks are multiply on an abundant level. And I want you to know that you will have a great reputation wherever you go. You will bear a reputation for my name that will be excellent. And I will bless it. And kings and nations will look to you and admire, admire you. You will be the head, not the, uh, not the tail. You will be in leadership. And I will be your God. What an incredible promise. If you had a dad that came and gave you all of these promises and you're like, yeah, that's awesome. But there's only one condition. You have to obey. You have to listen. You have to submit yourself to me. But then there was the other side. There was the other side where God said to the people of Israel, listen, 
if you do not worship me, if you disobey me, if you go off in rebellion, I want you to know I will bring all the curses. Just the opposite of what I said is going to be true of you. I will bring curses upon you, and you will not live long in your land. In fact, you will eventually be taken off into exile. I will punish you. And so this is the God who gave promises way back at the time of Noah, or Moses. And at the time of Moses, he gave this promise, and he says, this is what you need to do. Now, fast forward a few years. They enter into their promised land. They conquer the land. They have different kings. They have King Saul. Then they have King David. And finally, they get to King Solomon. And God has teed up the whole kingdom for Solomon. And it's one united kingdom. It's the northern and southern kingdom combined. They are all one united 12 uh, 12 nations or 12 tribes together. And God says, under Solomon, you will be one nation. Now, Solomon, here's what you got to do. Remember my promise. If you obey me, if you believe in me, if you listen to me, I am going to bless you. And Solomon starts off as a great king. And everything God does, he blesses this kingdom. And we see people coming from afar just to see Solomon's wisdom. They want to see his uh, the, the, the things that God has given them. He's built parkways. He's built waterways. He's just done incredible things in this nation. But Solomon had one itty-bitty problem. Women. He had a problem with women. He loved foreign women. And God said, do not give your heart over to foreign women because it will take you to foreign gods. In fact, he ended up having a thousand wives and concubines. And as a result... He disobeyed, and God said eventually, I'm tearing your kingdom in half. I am going to tear it in half. In fact, there will be ten northern tribes. There will be the ten two southern tribes. I'll still give you for your father's namesake. I'm still going to give you the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, and I'm going to allow them to remain with you. And so God divided the kingdom after Solomon left it, uh, after he died, and the kingdom was divided. And eventually, the kingdom fell apart. The ten northern tribes of Assyria uh, were taken captive by a country called Assyria. They were no more. They didn't exist. They probably intermarried within the Assyrians, and they disappeared completely off the map. And then eventually, 136 years later, God in judgment took the southern tribe of Israel, two tribes, and he took them into judgment. Now, he sent prophet after prophet, just like he did to the northern kingdom, and said, be warned, be warned. Listen, you are still being disobedient. God told you he's a promise maker. He's going to bring out the curses upon you if you don't listen to him. And that's exactly what God did to the southern tribe. And so eventually, God took the southern tribe and said, I'm going to take you captive by Babylon. This is the Babylonian Empire that took them, took them out of their homes, took them out of their possessions, carried them off into modern-day Iraq, and this is where they would be placed into that place, and they would no longer have their homes in, in their chosen promised land. And so for 70 years, God put them in a divine timeout. 
he said, I am going to punish you. Now, the one difference between the northern tribe and the southern tribe is the southern tribe kept their identity. They went within Babylon, and God even told them, he says, I want you to seek the peace and prosperity of the city that I am sending you. And some of the people did that. Now, I'm going to show you something on a video. This is a little bit more history than a lot of people might necessarily want, but I think it's very important for you to understand the context of Nehemiah. So I want you to watch this, and then afterwards I'm going to have you stand, and we're going to pray for the, just the, the opening of God's Word because uh, I, I want to give you a little bit of time to stand because it's a long time to sit. Watch this. Let's stand up. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, if we understand anything, even from that graphic, it's that we need a new heart, and that even the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah are going to show the need for a heart change. And Lord, we still see that need today in our own lives. We need our hearts changed in many different ways. And as we go through your scripture, your book, Nehemiah, Pray, Father, that you would help us to have heart change in, in small steps. I pray, Father, that you would show yourself to us, to us today as we look at the character of Nehemiah, as we look at the change that you do in his heart and the call to action that you place upon his life. I pray, Father, that you would help us to evaluate our own character. Help us to understand what change you want to make in our own heart. And Lord, if there is an area that you want to call us to action to, I pray that you would make that very, very evident. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We are going to look at those three things, character of Nehemiah, the change that takes place, and his call to action. So let's look at his character in verse 1. Uh, it says, the word of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali. Now, that's about all that we're told about Nehemiah's history. It's not a whole lot. We're not told about his family. We're not told about how he was brought up. We're not told about the, the kind of heritage, whether it was a heritage of faith or as a heritage of denial of God. What we know is simply this, is that he was a Jew. He was raised within his family of Hakali. Now, Here's what I, we do know, piecing it together, he was born in Babylon. So that means that he was a third generation. Now let's understand a little bit about family dynamics. If you go to his grandparents, they were the first generation people that left and understood hardship. If you talk to immigrants today, the first generation people are the ones that have all the stories of the old country and how it was and how they were persecuted or the hardships that they went through. In the case of Nehemiah's grandparents, they would have been the ones of telling of the glory of Jerusalem and telling of how good it was in the promised land and how they had their house and they had their possessions and how it was all taken away from them. Nehemiah's parents would have been the bridgers. They would have been the people that understood the old, old lifestyle, but then they were the ones that had to build something new in Babylon, in a new city. But here we have Nehemiah. He didn't grow up with any of that. 
The stories of the grandparents is just that. It's the stories of the grandparents. They're not my hardships. Certainly respected that, but he had his own stories. In fact, what we know about Nehemiah is that Nehemiah embraced now this Persian environment. Babylon, the Babylonians are gone. The Persians have taken over this city. And so he has raised up within the Persian Empire. And so what we see, we see three things happen in Nehemiah's life. First of all, he rose to a position of prominence in this pagan environment. To do that as a Jewish person, this would mean that he, uh, he would have had to have been a smart individual. He would have had to have been diplomatic. He would have had to control his tongue. He would have been emotionally stable. He would have been a mature individual for him to rise up and probably a fairly good-looking person because kings those days just didn't want ugly people in their court. And so we know this about Nehemiah. We know that he became the king's personal cupbearer. Now, if I am the king and someone is my cupbearer, I want to make sure that they are going to do everything they can to protect me so that I don't get poisoned. They die before I die. That's the idea behind a cupbearer. And so Nehemiah had to be the most trusted individual to be the cupbearer of the king. And we also know that he was in that court. He was near the king. So it's very possible that the king could call upon him in terms of a confidant any time that he wanted. We don't know that he did, but we know that he was present before the king. So this is the character of Nehemiah. There's also a change that evidently takes place in Nehemiah's heart. Here's what we know from the, from the outline that was just given back in Ezra chapter 4, that there was this rebuilding of a temple. There was a first wave of Jews that had gone back to Jerusalem. They laid the foundation of a temple. They built the temple. And what we know in Ezra 4 is that they started to rebuild the walls. They actually started to do that. But there was a commander in this new king at that time. His name was King Artaxerxes. He, he uh, had a, uh, a commander named Rehem. And Rehem sent a note to the king saying, Hey, king, listen, I think these guys are building this temple. They're rebuilding these walls because these people, these Jews, you can't trust them. They want to betray you. They don't want to pay taxes. They're going to revolt against you. They're going to live separately uh, apart from your role, from your uh, ruling over them. And so I would check into the archives of this city of Jerusalem, and you're going to find that there's a lot of rebellion there. And so this is what king, the king did. He looked into this, King Artaxerxes. He looked into it and found that, yes, there was a lot of history of rebellion there. And so he put a stop to it. He said, no more rebuilding in the city of Jerusalem. Nehemiah would have had this knowledge because he grew up in Artaxerxes' court. He would have at least had the knowledge that the, the building had stopped. Needless to say, there wasn't any sense of call to action in Nehemiah's heart at that point for him to do anything. There wasn't any sense of nationalistic pride, to be honest. He was all Persian. He was all for the Persian government. He was, he was in that government, and so that was his heart. That is until his brother, his brother Hanani, 
in 444 B.C. came to him and gave him this report. Take a look at verse 1. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, which is uh, November, December, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, I was in Susa, the citadel. Then Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah and asked them concerning the Jews, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exiles, and concerning Jerusalem. So it's evidently Nehemiah had this knowledge, and he's curious about it. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, you might look at this and you say, what drove Hanani to go to Nehemiah, his brother? Possibly he was in Jerusalem sitting with a committee of people and they're saying, we got to do something about this. Our city is in shambles. What can we do? And Hanani says, well, my brother's the cupbearer uh, to the king. Maybe I can talk to him. We don't know that for certain. That's speculation. But we do know that he was sent and he did give a report to his brother. And it was at that report that something changed in Nehemiah's heart. I think this was kind of the hinge point from Nehemiah to go from a Persian nationalistic pride to remembering his roots, to remembering his heritage, and for him to realize that he was a Jew and that his chosen people and the chosen land was in distraught and there was a change in his heart. There was this move to action. So what caused it? What brought it about? Is there something that we can learn ourselves in regards to a move to action? I might be able to relate in a small way to what maybe Nehemiah underwent. I can remember some time back that I went to a pastor's conference in 2004. It was at Moody Bible Institute. And there was all kinds of incredible speakers that were there and they were speaking on all kinds of things from the scriptures. There was Ravi Zachariah. Man, that guy makes my head hurt. Jim Cimbala, Crawford Loritz, Alistair Begg, and so forth. There was incredible speakers. But then there was a speaker I had never heard before. His name was Gary Hogan. And Gary Hogden was the founder of International Justice Missions. And Gary started speaking about the atrocities of human rights, such as what had happened in Darfur, in Rwanda, and in the current atrocities of human trafficking around the world. And as he shared this and he interwove it with Psalm chapter 10, I got to admit that I sat there with my heart pinned up against the wall. Because I knew nothing of these atrocities. Oh, I had heard about them, but they were things that happened way out there. It didn't involve my life. No one was dying around me. No one was being sold into the sex trade around me. But the Spirit of God brought it right to my reality at that moment. And I felt like there was a call to action upon my own heart. That led me to weeks of prayer where I sought God's face and God eventually brought me in contact with Remember New that was beginning at that time. And at that moment, 
we decided that we would start adopting children, that we would be a part of the mission project of engaging in these children's lives and financially supporting those homes. My friends, this is one of the reasons why we do what we do. Well, we've sent a team already to Thailand to develop the home that we have in the hill tribes and how, why we're rescuing children. The reason is that God put a call to action and that has had a trickle-down effect. Let me ask you a question. Is there something or someone that God is moving to a call to action today? Is there something in your heart that God has been kind of germinating within your heart? There's been something that's been troubling you. It might be something big. It might be something small. But I would say this. Pay attention to what God is doing because he may be using you as an instrument. You may be thinking, I'll wait for the church. I'll wait for the church to have this special calling and I'll jump on board. It doesn't work that way. I want you to know all funneling of call to action doesn't happen through the senior pastor. It doesn't happen that way at all. You know what it does? It happens through those that have the Spirit of God living within, within their hearts. And that is every person that is a Christ follower. God has a way of calling people to action every single day. Long after I'm gone, there will be believers that will be rising up to a call to action because of something that God has placed upon their hearts. And this is how Christianity has spread and continues to spread because people have been obedient to the call of action that he has placed upon their hearts. May that continue in your heart. How did that call to action get culminated? culminated? What's beautiful is in our passage today, we see exactly how. It started off with prayer. Take a look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Do you see this individual moved? It starts with the moving of God in our own emotions, Him stirring our hearts of saying, how can this injustice be? Or how can this certain thing happen? Well, Lord, why is this taking place in the world? It starts with that movement from within. But notice he fasts. The word fast means that we go without food. It's a time period by which we say, I'm going to surrender the right to eat food in order to focus primarily upon this need that's upon my heart. And with fasting comes prayer where we seek God's face and we reach out to the heart of God. So what moved Nehemiah to prayer? Was it a child that was near death? Was it uh, somebody that was, was he grieving over the marriages that were going wrong around him? Was he grieving over a loved one that was far from God? No, that wasn't what was on Nehemiah's heart. It might be what's on your heart. 
It might be something that needs to take you to a place of fasting and prayer. But for Nehemiah, it was the state of his nation. It was the state of his nation that caused him to fast and pray. And when Nehemiah went into his prayer room, please understand that in this prayer room, it was also the decision room. It was the decision room where he said, I know that God has uniquely placed this upon my heart and I am, not, I am the one who needs to step up because I am in the place to do so. See, the prayer room is often the decision room for us. And that's why all critical decisions need to start with prayer. Listen to the prayer. Verse 5, he starts in this prayer by acknowledging the one who's in control. He says, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Every word here is vital. He starts off by saying, O Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the God who's in control, the covenant maker, the promise keeper, God of heaven, meaning the one who is of the endless resource, the sovereign one, the great and awesome one, telling of his majesty and his power, the God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those, and, and he keeps his commands. By starting this way, what Nehemiah was doing was he's saying, I have a God-sized vision that only a sovereign God can do. Because I am just a human being, but with God, all things are possible. So he acknowledges the one who's in control. But then he goes into a place in his prayer that's probably a difficult place. He goes into a place of confessing specific sins. Look at verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now may pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my fathers, we have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments and the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Notice that Nehemiah includes himself in this confession of this nationalistic prayer. Very clearly he says, we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned against you. Can you imagine if at the inauguration of our president, if our president says, you know what, I'd like to just take a moment and pray myself. And if he would have stood up and prayed and says, Oh, Father, forgive us as a nation. Forgive me because we have slaughtered one unborn child after another in this nation. We are guilty of the blood of the innocent. We have been guilty of going away from your commandments. I would have died if I would have heard a prayer like that. But I would have rejoiced at the same time. This is what Nehemiah did on behalf of his nation. Nehemiah did what other leaders had done. 
A hundred years previous to this, Daniel made a similar prayer. He said this, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all those who love and obey his commands. See the similarities? We have sinned and, and done wrong. We have been wicked and we have rebelled. We have turned away from your command and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name. See, in reading this, it causes me to pause and ask a question. Have we properly acknowledged our sin before a holy God? You see, long before we're going to do anything great for God, we have to acknowledge before our great God our small-mindedness, our faithlessness, our insatiable desire to be preoccupied with stuff as opposed to being preoccupied completely with God. How we have often put creation over the Creator. We have to come before God in all honesty. And maybe today there is a call to action that God might be moving in your own heart. And please know that this was a private prayer that Nehemiah had. And I, my encouragement would be to get alone and be real. Be real with God and acknowledge our sin. And fall before Him and say, God, I need to confess these things before you. And then his prayer goes on. And Nehemiah claims the promises of God. And he, looks, he says this in verse 8. He says, remember the word that, your command, uh, that you commanded your servants, Moses, saying, if you are faithful, I will scatter you. Uh, if you're faith, unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commands and do them, though your outcasts, though your outcasts are in the utter parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. I'll tell you about that in a minute. There are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. Now, Nehemiah claims, I believe, the promise of God in his next part of the prayer. Now, at first glance, it sounds like Nehemiah is reminding God of his promise to restore his people after they've repented. But I don't believe Nehemiah, an ordinary human being, needed to remind God, the extraordinary God, all-powerful God of anything. I think what Nehemiah is doing is he is simply claiming the promises of God. He is simply looking, you are a promise keeper, God. You said it, I believe it, you're going to do it. And because we are coming to you, we are repenting now, we are claiming that promise. And even on a greater, a greater picture, that you're going to restore your name. Restore us to the city where your name is all about. What's he talking about? You see, way back when Solomon had built a temple before he had fallen, God made a promise to the people of Israel. And this is what God said. He says, I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there. To be there. 
And of course, the city of Jerusalem was where the temple was. And when it was dedicated, if you were to read in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, you would read that God says he reiterates all the blessings and curses. He says, if you live, live for me, if you honor me, if you worship me, you will bring great praise to me. But if you do not, you will bring a stench to the nostrils of the people around and give a bad name to your God. You will do that. You will be responsible for that. So the promise that Nehemiah is claiming is he is claiming to make God's name great again by trusting in God. See, all God wanted of his people is for his people who were called by his name to humble themselves, to pray, to seek his face, to turn from their wicked ways. And he says, I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sins. I'll heal their land. And in a sense, make his name great again. Now, this brings up a, a curious question. Is it our desire to make the name of God great again? I know we've come out of a political season. You've kind of heard something similar that to, the, to, to that extent, haven't you? Make America great again. Make America great again. Make America great again. We've heard it over and over again, and we'll continue to hear it, I believe, for the next four years. Okay, that's fine. But what if the theme or the mantra of the church was to make God's name great? Make it great again? I know there would be a little bit of pushback because it's like, no, 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 Steve. You don't understand. God's name has always been great. God's well, well, he will forever be great. Yeah, that's true. But if we understand in the context of Nehemiah, it was the people of Israel that brought a reproach to the name of God. It asks us a question. It begs us to ask a question. What kind of reputation is the church bringing upon God? What kind of reputation has the church brought upon God? Now, I'm not saying that this is a time to beat up on the church, but it is certainly fair for us to evaluate where we are at. See, in our current culture, we've had a lot of tensions going on within the church universal, haven't we? Listen to some of these words that have, uh, and debates that have gone on. We've heard of debates about tolerating all faiths. Some of more liberal churches are going to say, accept all faiths. All faiths will lead you to God. There is a tension within the church that there needs to be inclusion. That we need to allow God's definition to be tweaked a little bit to include, be more inclusive of all people that we need to be able to redefine marriage. These are tensions within the church. There's a tension within the church to make church more palatable, for it to be more of an entertainment or a performance center where we come here and it makes people feel good about where they're at. And that's a great starting point and that maybe they can hear about Christ, that there needs to be a little bit more of an attraction there's a tension within the church to not be known for what we hate, 
but be know, known for what God loves. And I agree with that. But we have many churches that are known for what they hate and less about what they love. There is a tension within the church of there being less of God's word so that we can make it more palatable. It's like putting a pill in honey and making it easier to swallow so that we can kind of put it in a topical form where it's more interesting. There's a call to, in the church within this idea of social action. There's a need to respond to injustices. There's a debate between man-centered worship and God-centered worship. There's a debate between whether the church is relevant or irrelevant. And in all of these words, in all of these debates, the simple question that comes to my mind is, where is God in all of this? Because I will tell you, the further we get away from this, the less honoring it is to God. And we have a chance to bring a reproach upon God. And may that not be here. And may that not be within the body of Christ. Are we bringing a bad name upon God? It's something to evaluate. In conclusion, at the end of the prayer, Paul says, or uh, Nehemiah says this in verse 11. He asks for success. He says, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer uh, of your servant who delights and fears your name and give success to your servant today and grant him in the sight of this man. Nehemiah knew that the only man that could make it possible to restore Jerusalem was his boss. The very one who 20 years previous put a stop to the rebuilding of Jerusalem is the only one that could give the clearance. And so Nehemiah was trusting that God would be the one that would change his heart. He knew Proverbs 21, verse 1 said that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, that he directs it like the water course wherever he pleases. God was the only one that could move the heart of the king, and therefore Nehemiah was willing to take the risk of putting his life at risk in order to go before the king. Of course, when we want to do great things for God, there's always a risk. So let me conclude with this question. What great things are we asking of God in our lives? What great things do we want God to do through us? We still have a God who loves to fulfill his promises and his word. Are you believing God to do a work in you? To maybe it's, a, it's as simple as healing you of the emotional things that you've gone through. Maybe it's believing that God wants to do something specific in your heart. Whatever it is, what we see of this prayer is that there was this incredible dependency upon God and clinging to Him with that dependency and saying, God, you do something beautiful. We're closing with a song that's appropriate. Come to my rescue. Come to my rescue wherever I am in life. Come to my rescue. 
Because that's the application to our worship today, that we have to cry out to him that he would come where we are, see where our need is, and that we would listen to whatever God has to say as he heals us. Let's conclude our worship by singing this song.